Well, 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 everybody, here we are at the penultimate episode of Season 2 of the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. Yep, there's this one and one more left, and then we are done for Season 2. Today, we're going to finish where we start. I started with squirrels with my good friend Jonathan O'Dell, who is one of the most squirrel huntingest guys we know. And we're going to finish with rabbits and hares, also with Jonathan, because if he's not hunting squirrels, He's hunting rabbits or jackrabbits or hares somewhere, someplace in this country of ours. You are in for a ride because Jonathan has all kinds of cool and bizarro esoteric knowledge about all things rabbit and all things hare. So without further ado, let's get into the penultimate episode of season two. Jonathan O'Dell, welcome back to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I am super happy to have you Bookend season two. We started season two with you, and we're going to end season two with you. And unlike the first episode where we did squirrels, we are going to end with a topic near and dear to both of us, the wild and varied world of lagomorphs. <laughs> well, Hank, thanks for having me back on again. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, the, uh, the, the, super, the super species on the planet. Yeah, I mean... I thought about doing a separate cottontail and jackrabbit episode, but you kind of hunt them in pretty much the same way, and you can often see both in the same day. So I figured, well, why not? And plus, you and I have hunted both species quite a bit, and we both have hunted jackrabbits and regular rabbits in many states. I mean, I think I've probably hunted them in a good dozen states and and even a, a couple of provinces in Canada. Yeah. Well, I think probably for, for some of your listeners as well, um, they have hares, uh, or at least they're by name anyway. There's, let me see it. Let's, let's go through this species now. So there's, let's go jackrabbits first in that you can hunt in the U.S. and Canada. So it would be the antelope jack, you yep. know, the real jackalope, then the blacktail jackrabbit, which is kind of a hot weather, deserty jackrabbit, the white-tailed jackrabbit which is sort of the great plains and he goes all the way up to canada and then you're right then like once you get out of there we don't call them jackrabbits anymore so what are the hares the hares are all northern species right yeah so we have snowshoes uh the alaskan hare and the arctic hare and i believe uh yeah for the northern country that's it uh the the other species that are further south in new mexico are all known as jackrabbits as well is there another, like, a Mexican jackrabbit that we don't have in the United States? Yeah, there's an endangered one uh, along the west coast of Mexico. Um, oh, man, and now my, my brain is uh, freezing up. Uh, but it's a it's a coastal uh, kind of sand dune-type um, habitat rabbit um, way far south. And then there, I, if I remember right, there may be another one that's more inland, like central. Uh, Mexico, South Central Mexico. Um, if I'm thinking about that. Oh yes, no, no, that's correct. The the white sided jackrabbit. White sided. Um, oh. White sided, yeah. So that's the um, it's it, it's only stretch into the United States is the boot heel of New Mexico, uh, and it's a it's a thorn scrub uh, jackrabbit. It, it's all through that Cohila stuff, uh, and and through there but but yeah they're just in the in the boot heel of new mexico it's the only part of the range they used to reach southeastern arizona uh with the apple falcon and all that kind of stuff there but uh the the 
their range is receded a little bit, so they're only in the boot heel. Uh, Border Patrol, incidentally, is actually the um, greatest, the number one mortality factor for those rabbits. Oh, uh, no, they run their truck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so when you, it was really hard to dis, to, when you, when you go back and look at those things, it's hard to separate out because people didn't necessarily always use the right uh, name for things. Sometimes you hear antelope jacks called white-sided rabbits because of the, the flashing that they do on their sides, but, but, they're definitely not white-sided jackrabbits, which are, are completely separate. They're actually pretty cool. The female's larger than the male, um, hmm. and they're always in pairs. Is it legal to hunt them in not, New Mexico? It's not legal to hunt them in New Mexico, but you you can uh, – I believe they, they do allow some of the hunting on some of the ranches um, in south in Mexico. So ah. so now on the, on the kind of the rabbit side, we all know the cottontails, and we should get into them in a second. But there's the cottontails of which, you know, you, you, I'm sure, pretty sure you know most of the subspecies. But there's also a the swamp rabbit, and he's a big giant rabbit who lives kind of in the center of the country with, with, uh, with very short ears and obviously lives in marshes. And then I don't – well, I mean there's European rabbits that have gotten loose in New Jersey, some parts of New York, and then Vancouver Island. But other than that, I think our white meat rabbits are – you know, those, those two small areas where there's European rabbits running around. There's the swamp rabbit. And then there's all the different cottontails. And, and then there's a lot of them, right? Yeah, there's there's a number of them. And that's where it's different because the, the jackrabbits and hares are speciated. Uh, cottontails are subspecies. Uh, so they're all, they're all part of that cottontail clade. And, and then you have... Uh, the, what most people know as the, the Eastern, um, and then, uh, which has probably the widest distribution. Then you have, uh, deserts, uh, mountain. Um, they, they do call one, the one out in California, is it the brush, brush rabbit? Uh, the dark coated one, uh, along the coast. And at one point there was one called like a, a, a riverine rabbit, which was also kind of west Western U.S. Uh, as well, uh, and that was some colored ones. But then there's the the, the grand missing one, which isn't a cottontail, uh, the pygmy rabbit. Ah, um, uh, yes, the little in, teeny ones. Yeah. But there's several About pygmy the rabbits, a, aren't there? No, I mean, I think they might differentiate into two kinds like they do with uh, the grouse. There's the Columbia uh, Basin one, I think, or... or Something about that western, southwestern Idaho, eastern Oregon group, and then there's uh, there might be a different subspecies of of that same rabbit in uh, Montana, Wyoming, all that just on the uh, the fringe of the Rocky Mountains there. And they're sort of they're, I know they're not legal to target in California, but I think you can take them as part of your rabbit bag in in the mountain states, right? Uh, they use, yeah, Utah used to allow, but they don't anymore. Uh, Wyoming and Montana may, maybe, yeah, it's not like you can go out and specifically target them. Uh, but you know, occasionally, obviously you're out in rabbit country and cottontails and things are out there and, and you may just, you know, see one real quick and you take a shot. Uh, I don't, I don't necessarily, I don't quote me on it. I'm not the, 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 the legal <laughs> representative for Montana and Wyoming. If you take one of those, but I think, I think it might be okay. So, so but let's, I double check. 
let's talk about the cultural significance of rabbit and hare hunting. And this we can this is actually a species where there's a lot to talk about in the sense that rabbit hunting has a, a social history not only in this country but in in Europe. And jackrabbit hunting also has a has a pretty deep social connection. I mean, in this country, especially if you call them jackrabbits, there is a strong connotation with, oh, those are not for eating, or those are for poor people, or they're they're going to make you sick, or they're just they're 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 kind of hated on in a way that their biological cousins, anything called a hare, whether it's in Europe with it, you know, sort of the true European hares or the snowshoe hare, which is also a hare, uh, are not like, so the, the, the hare, if you call it a hare, people say, Oh yeah, that's a, that's the thing for eating. If you call it a jackrabbit, apparently is not a thing for eating. And, um, I'd be interested to hear your take on why that happened. Well, we should talk about the name for sure. Um, so it, famously, um, I think the first, as near as we can tell, the first time we see the the idea of the word jackrabbit in print uh, was actually from Mark Twain. Hmm. Um, he he his quote uh, uh, was referring to he's talking about the rabbit that he saw, and it was uh, uh, what he, I can't remember how he phrased it, but it was uh, ears is as ridiculous uh, as the jackass. Um, and so it became jackass rabbit and then shortened yeah. to jackrabbit. But uh, I think we do know that pioneers, early pioneers and all that other stuff were also possibly calling them jackass rabbits uh, or jackrabbits um, as it later became. So, But the only time – the first time I think we see it in print was Mark Twain because we know uh, for the most part the, the blacktail jackrabbit has the widest range and it stretches all the way to Missouri right now, Missouri to California. Yeah, because they're yeah. our local jackrabbit. Yeah, and that would have been the you know the pioneers' route as they were going west across the United States, and um, so this also it leads into another uh, discussion point. But so they would see black-tailed jackrabbits until they went pretty far north on the Oregon Trail, and they wouldn't have seen uh, antelope jacks unless they had come through you know far southern Arizona. But the most predominant thing out in that sagebrush country would have been would have been black-tailed jacks. And um, so, yeah, their their name really kind of evolved from that, even though all jackrabbits are hares, but not all hares are jackrabbits. Uh, that's really kind of the, the overall of that. But what I would say is, uh, as we as we talk about it, um, the, the idea of Allen's rule plays into all this as we talk about their ears. So if you're not familiar, there's there's rules, kind of generic rules. They're not set in stone or you know 100% accurate all the time but there's a, a rule called Bergman's rule which says the further away from the equator you get the larger your body size or body mass is right, for thermo right. thermoregulation for, for keeping in heat well Allen's rule um, Allen said that the further away the, the closer you got to the equator the larger your appendages the further away the smaller they were and what he actually based this on was hairs um, the antelope jackrabbit actually being Lepus alani, its scientific name, it was named after Allen, and this is where he started to develop that because in the south, he, you had antelope jackrabbits with extremely large ears 
Then you had blacktails that had a little bit shorter ears, and then you had whitetails that were a lot shorter, and then you had snowshoes and, and arctics, which all continued to shrink. And so um, Allen's rule started from jackrabbits as, as a whole. So, and that's for dissipating heat, right? Yeah, that's for for sending heat off or, or not losing heat, you know, as it were, if you're up in the far north country, because their their ears are very vascular. So um, instead of sweating and doing all that stuff, they can thermoregulate through their ears. So. So I think from a uh, the one thing I know about the the cultural thing is with with jackrabbits is that there's a there's a stigma to it that's kind of a double stigma. So in the beginning, the pioneers in the Great Plains who would dig their homes out of sod and and had a pretty rough time of it, in many cases, the jackrabbit was more or less the only protein that they had available to them. And so in that early sense in the 1800s, it was a symbol of hard scrabble living. And then again, in the Depression in the 30s, there was a similar, like, oh, we got to eat jackrabbits again. And if you eat more or less nothing but jackrabbits because there's no fat in them, they can give you malnutrition because they don't, they're not a complete protein if, if, if I'm getting that right. And it's a, it's a, it's a lack of fat in your diet. If you are forced to just subsist on jackrabbits that can give you health problems. And then that is one of the things that has come into the, the public consciousness is, Oh, well, they're not, they're not a thing for eating. Yeah. And that's, I, I think you're absolutely right. The, uh, there may also be something about our inability to process uh, some of the proteins from the meat of jackrabbits uh, or, or of hares in and of itself, because, yeah, a lot of early, early writings talked about how, you know, there were people would get known as rabbit fever or whatever from just eating rabbit. And it, and it wasn't a disease per se, but uh, like tularemia or something like that, it was it was you know, they were just malnourishing themselves from just eating rabbits. But yeah, the, and then you get the Dust Bowl era. And to me, that's probably where I think the, the biggest impact was because of the jackrabbit drives and everything else, because the only thing thriving during that period was all the hare species, all the jackrabbits, um, you know, because jackrabbits, jackrabbits are kind of cool because uh, the idea they can switch from their plant-based diet to protein. Hmm. Well, well known, well known fact about jackrabbits is is they actually can be omnivorous uh, whenever they want. They can actually turn into carnivory when when other food sources aren't available. Night of the lepus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a running yeah. joke that Jonathan and I have. There's, uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. There is one of the greatest. Uh, I think it would be, I, it's safe to say that it's a D-grade horror movie called Night of the Lepus, and it takes place like right near your house, right? Yeah, Night of the Lepus. Uh, the first time I watched Night of the Lepus uh, was when I was growing up in Montana at a drive-in movie theater. It was a double feature at the drive-in. It was Janet Leigh night. And and for those who don't know, Janet Leigh was the, the shower scene from Psycho. She was the woman who checked into the Bates Motel and had the famous scream. Well, she followed that movie up with Night of the Lepus. Oh, wow. Very, That's kind of she, a... <laughs> She was a very big name actress, um, and uh, the the lines and and just some of the the things when you see Night of the Lep when you go from Psycho to Night of the Lepus, you know this this grand director and great script and everything, and and to go to Night of the Lepus um, is is pretty horrible in terms of a career path, but 
Uh, yeah, Night of the Lepus takes place in Ajo, Arizona, south, southeastern Arizona. Giant uh, nuclear radiated rabbits turn flesh eating and try to eat the town of Ajo, and the sheriff has to fight them off. And there's researchers for the, from the University of Ajo, which was filmed on the University of Arizona campus, uh, is what caused the, the radiation spill or whatever that, that happened to the rabbits that now live out in Arizona and destroy everything. So. Well, of course they want to eat uh, everything in an ajo. It tastes like garlic. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's uh, more often I think uh, the cold rabbits, usually snowshoes, uh, tend to be the ones more associated with meat eating on a regular basis. Hmm. But um, uh, the other rabbits, like I said, going back to that Dust Bowl era, there's several accounts rabbits feeding on uh, dead cow carcasses because there was really nothing else to eat uh, on the landscape because the there was no rain grass and bushes didn't grow uh, and so the rabbits just started feeding on the dead cows and and i think if i was a midwesterner who you know was starting my cattle ranch and i'm eating beef prime grade beef that's you know pasture raised and all that and then i have to i'm forcibly have to switch to jackrabbits uh might anger me a little bit um because the rabbits are eating everybody out of house and home, and, and it's the only protein I can feed my family at that point. But um, they were clubbing. Oh, my Lord. Arizona, actually, our last jackrabbit drives outside of Tucson were in the 1950s. Hmm. Uh, it lasted so long. And, and if you're out there, out where we hunt, just a little north of usually where you and I hunt, Hank, is, is you can still see rabbit fence on the lower uh, third of uh, some old uh, farms and pastures out there crazy yeah. i mean it's the the but snowshoe hares are an entirely different thing where so if you go up farther north and you get this other you know this the the varying hare i guess it's probably is, is its official name but if you live in minnesota or michigan or vermont vermont and new hampshire and maine especially is a hotbed of snowshoe hare hunting to the point where it's i mean it's a thing it's as it's as big a uh, a, a pursuit as would be duck hunting in California. I mean, it's a, so you have this similar animal. I mean, although, you know, we'll get into the cooking and eating later, but I find snowshoe hares not as dark as the jackrabbits. I find them kind of a mid range, kind of almost like a squirrel color, like a, like a pink rather than a white or a, or a red. That yeah. could also have something to do with it. Yeah. They're, they're die. I mean, I don't, I'm not necessarily sure if some of the jackrabbits were, we, we know what happens with white-tailed jackrabbits, the color shift uh, from one season to the other, summer to winter. Uh, but I mean, you don't see it in blacktails. You don't see it in antelope jacks. They do molt, you know, their fur, but it's, it's not a, a significant color change like you see with, with whitetails and Alaskans, Arctics and snowshoes. So, but it's a very different hunting style as well when you see New England with snowshoes, uh, with the uh, the beagles and the chase and, and all that, uh, versus how we do it, you know, with no dogs and kind of open country spot and stock. And that kind of is a good segue into traditional rabbit hunting, which is also kind of a beagle thing. And it's it's very much, yeah, I mean, yes, in the deep south, but also in, in kind of the center of the country, in the kind of the Appalachia area where – Rabbit hunting is also a big thing. I mean, this is we're talking cottontails here, and to run beagles on cottontails is—I mean, I've been doing that for hundreds of years. Yeah, I, and I think 
uh, as well with swamp rabbits. That's really one of the most effective ways that I've seen that folks hunt swamp rabbits too, is with dogs. So my impression of why beagles is that A, they're loud, and B, they're not as fast as rabbits. So you're less likely to actually accidentally shoot your beagle when the rabbit squirts out after it's being chased. Yeah, probably. You know, whereas I've seen other people hunt uh, hares with coursing dogs whose job is to actually catch the hare. Right. Have you ever seen that? I've only seen it in in video. I've never been uh, to a, a... Never been on a hunt where somebody was running coursing dogs. No, I, I've I've seen coursing dogs used uh, on like fox hunts and and coyote hunts uh, from horseback, but never on on rabbits. I was even well when I was in England. I mean, I got to see European hares and rabbits um, and kind of what environment looks like and and all that, and could imagine uh, you know having coursing dogs chasing out through those big you know, rich estates that you find out in the, the English countryside and, and uh, all that. Did you get but, a chance to hunt uh, hares when you were in England? No, I, I wish I had. Um, of course, not, you know, having hunted there before and, and all that, just getting that opportunity to kind of do it. I, I most certainly want to go back because uh, the guide I ended up linking up with, that was, that was how I found him was uh, I saw an advertisement for small game hunts in England first. And I was like, Oh, cool. You know, let me see what else he offers. And he had this whole plethora of things to, to kind of do, but, uh, it would be so much fun to go back, uh, and hunt cause he does hares and foxes and, and that's for England. That's what's considered small game. So I, uh, I got a chance to hunt European hares with Holly in New Zealand where, you know, New Zealand is sort of the land of like, let's put it there and see if it does well. And <laughs> so virtually all of the game in New Zealand is not native and including these Big ass hares. I mean, it's 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 amazing how much bigger they are than. Well, I, I, the only thing I can imagine, and I have not seen them in person, uh, is of similar size are the Alaskan and the Arctic hares because these are big, chunky, big old. Like, I mean, these are the kind of things you want to shoot with goose loads. I mean, they're they're <laughs> not a thing that's gonna. I mean, you shoot them with sixes or sevens, and they're just gonna laugh at you. Right. But they're delicious. Uh, they're they're just they're they're big and dark, um, you know. And we'll get into it more a little bit later. But you know, one of the primary separation points between rabbits and hares is that rabbits are light meat and hares are dark meat. And even though they look similar on the outside, they couldn't be more different on the inside. Hey everybody, I'd like to take this time to thank Filson for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. As you may know, I wear their gear in the field all the time. I love their vests. I love their outerwear. Their tin cloth jacket is awesome. Definitely take a look at their collection of gear. A lot of it is new. A lot of it has been around for decades, and all of it is super, super high quality. If you are in the market for something to wear on your upland hunt this fall, absolutely check out Filson. I can totally vouch for them from personal experience. Filson was founded in Seattle in 1897 when they started outfitting prospectors for the Klondike Gold Rush. And ever since then, they've been committed to creating best-in-class gear for the world's toughest people in the most unforgiving conditions. Rabbit hunting is its its very much like what we talked about in the squirrel episode. It is often a gateway to for a new hunter. You know, so it's a, it's a low-pressure hunt. You know, you're not... Nobody's going to yell at you if you miss a rabbit. You know, there's no tags involved. You know, the equipment is pretty much 
uh, a shotgun and uh, a pair of boots and a hat maybe. And it's something that, you know, young kids can do that beginners can do. And it's a, you know, rabbits are plentiful. Rabbits are everywhere. Um, and, and I think that because we have been managing for wild turkeys and white-tailed deer and some of the other more charismatic bigger species, I get the sense that rabbit hunting is on the decline. I mean, do you? Uh, yeah, to an extent, um, you know, the, the farm bill for the United States was created in 1985. Um, and to me, when I, when I look at, when I look across that heartland middle belt of the United States, 1985 was about the perfect time when you think about habitat for rabbits and squirrels and small game in the overall, because all the farms were, were small family owned places and they weren't, they weren't farmed the way they are today. Uh, a lot of corporations have come in now and, and the FDA has put food restrictions on, on crops and those kind of things. And so what you get is a lot of clean farming, which means none of those, those windrows or, or hedges and edges and buffers and, and those kind of things. And that's what the farm bill and, and the CRP program for pheasants fought to, to keep in place was this, these habitats, these little microcosm habitats in small areas that maybe weren't productive for growing whatever crop you were after, but it provided great habitat for, for all the small game in those areas, be it pheasants, rabbits, bobwhite quail, whatever. And so you know, as things have progressed over the last 35 years or, or, or more into this clean farming, a lot of those small family-owned farms, people have kind of gotten away. We've gotten more urbanized. You know, there isn't that connection because even back in history, I mean, part of part of the the intrigue or something for for squirrel hunting or rabbit hunting was was defending your crops against these marauders or <laughs> you know to eat them all. Even today, um, it's defending your garden. I mean, I can't tell you sure. how many times I get a note from somebody who lives in suburbia. I'm like, hey, my the bunnies are eating my garden, and what should I do about it? I'm like, well, you need to figure out what's legal in your wherever it is you live, because chances are you can't just go blazing away at them with a shotgun in you know in your subdivision. But uh, but yeah, like bunnies are a garden enemy, and so that's that's still a thing. Yeah. But you know they they're also fairly good table fare uh, when you look at mostly the cottontails and that that bramble type environment, uh, windrows and and edges and things on your fields. Uh, how a lot of folks could just walk along and kick up rabbits out in front of them as they were going along, not needing the the dog to chase or whatever. Um, so it was I think it was more accessible uh, then than it is now, but. Uh, I know uh, in talking to some of the other states, um, they are really protective over the rabbit seasons and uh, how that progresses. Because I've gotten questions a lot why Arizona has a year-round rabbit season. Uh, people are just stunned by it. And part of that goes into the whole myth of, you know, rabbits are flea-bitten, diseased vermin. You know, oh my gosh, can't shoot them till after the first frost or the first snow or only months at NNR or the first Tuesday after a leap year or on a full moon or whatever. <laughs> I've heard it so many weird things about rabbits that I'm like, wow, you know, and, and some of those things ended up creating, uh, legal things, like legal, uh, regulations in states because people believed this and, 
you know, so suddenly you can't shoot rabbits during warm months or, you know, when temperatures are at a certain level. And I'm like, okay, that's kind of insane. Um, you know, cause I, the myth continues to persist with among amongst hunters and, and through hunters. And I'm like, why do you, if, if warm temperatures were really an issue and it was a public health risk, why would Arizona have a year round season? Um, cause it doesn't frost here. It doesn't snow. Like, you know, we don't, have these weird temperatures but you know i i get it what basically no one paid attention biology class is what happened um rabbits don't have any more or less diseases or parasites in the winter and the summer they're just in different forms oh Um, i don't know i mean maybe the different forms is what i'm thinking of is like if you hunt rabbits in the winter time up here in california or if you hunt them in the north where you do get frost and snow you have way less bot fly sure and it and that's part of it is you won't see them you know, it's, it's, I, I get, you know, shooting in the warmer, everything grows in the summer. That's the basic biology of everything, including bugs and parasites. And so they're more visible in the warmer months. And so when you open a rabbit up, see that, ah, yeah, it's kind of gross, you know, but for most of them, they, they don't, you know, it, it comes off during the skinning process or, and it's not, you know, a part of the meat or, or anything It comes off with the hide and, and really doesn't affect the meat, but people see that and it's like, oh my gosh, you know, they lose their mind. Um, because these same bot flies and stuff, you know, I, I can't tell you how many deer check stations I've been at with a, a beautiful buck in the back and a bot fly will come out their nose while we're sitting there talking or inspecting the deer. And no one ever talks about throwing away the deer meat. Right. Yet, Although it it's a, super it horrible. Happens, yeah. If it happens in a rabbit, oh my gosh, we can't eat this. We have to bury it. It's awful. Burn it, you know, burn the witches, everything. <laughs> you know, um, it's crazy. Uh, cause it's the same parasite in both species. And I'm like, wow, I, okay. You know, no one ever throws away deer because of a bot fly, but suddenly rabbits are evil and awful. So, well, it's interesting. I mean, it's a good, it's a good parallel, uh, for two reasons. One, um, I guess the, there is a perception and I think there's some reality to it as well that lagomorphs, rabbits and hares are, are, have more parasites or, or wee beasties that deal that are all over them than some of the other game that we hunt. I mean, I know that's been my experience. I mean, yes, deer have fleas and ticks and bot flies, and but I, I it, it almost seems like, well, a you're not carrying them, you, you know, unless you're doing the Robin Hood thing and carrying your deer over your neck, which by the way is how uh, a neighbor of mine got Rocky Mountain spotted fever. He was carrying <laughs> the carrying his deer out of the mountains and a, and a, a Rocky Mountain spotted fever tick, or one that had it, bit him and he got it uh, wow. as he was ca- coming out, which is super, you know. It's, as, as cool as that Robin Hood carry of a deer looks, like I think I'm going to avoid that. Yeah. But the, the the thing with rabbits and hares is you carry them, and it's funny because um, uh, our our respective colleague Steve Ranella, um, I shot jackrabbits with him on his show some years back and made him a believer in in how tasty they are. And then on a subsequent episode of his show, he was hunting with Ronnie Bame, and he shot a jackrabbit for the pot. And it was so covered in fleas that they all jumped on him the second the second the rabbit was dead and and they're in his um in his you know his game bag that he's walking around in the in the scrub with. So you've got the I think that the presence of things like fleas and things like bot fly and those awful tapeworm cysts that can occur in the meat. I've seen them. Um uh, where it's like a it's like a sack with little white things in it. And it's super gross, right? And I've never seen that with deer. I've never seen that with waterfowl. I've never seen that with upland birds. Um, 
so there is there there is some there there when it comes to parasites and then food safety as well um i think other than you know no rabbit sushi i think the food safety <laughs> stuff is overblown um and most of the parasites are in the gut cavity or in the hide like you'd mentioned but i mean address that for a second i mean i think there are well, I, I, more parasites well and and to to some extent i mean you know part of this is is an unfairness because we as hunters develop these weird superstitions and and conspiracies and all that <laughs> a lot of times that 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 go beyond the norm and so um, even in your discussion right there, you were talking like, ah, oh, man, I haven't seen that as much in deer as, as I have rabbits. Well, how many deer have you shot versus how many rabbits have you shot? You you tend to come into contact with more rabbits uh, simply because you could take more. I mean, it'd be the same with squirrels. Uh, I find fleas on squirrels pretty regularly and all that. But, you know, unless you see a lot of deer in that same kind of numbers to be able to make, you know, those determinations, um, it's like, man, I've never shot a deer with a tick on it. Well, you just haven't shot enough deer yet. Uh that's where working at a check station where I could see, you know, 100, 200 deer more in a day, you kind of go, oh, okay, look, yeah, these are, I get a lot more of those questions regularly because they'll find cysts or they'll find bot flies or they'll find this or that. Um, and so I think it does happen. But when, when you actually look at the studies uh, of diseases and, and parasites for rabbits uh, and, and in terms of seasonality of that, um, you know, you, you don't um, see a, a, a great disparity in terms of, hey, we're finding, you know, more of these during this time versus that time, you know, hey, tularemia is more out there in, in August than it is in January. Uh, it just, it doesn't pan out. And a lot of times, I mean, the scarier thing to the whole uh, process is the fact that in the winter, likely all those parasites have laid eggs somewhere and eggs are a lot harder to see. And so uh, you could, you know, pass right by a, a, a you know small egg or a small egg cluster uh, in your scanning process of a rabbit and thank god they don't you know it doesn't impact the meat or anything uh, and as long as you're cooking them thoroughly it's not really not a big deal it's easier to see you know one of those big one inch marble you know size bot flies than it is to see an egg of one for sure so oh bot flies are so horrible like i'm gonna i'm gonna post a, a link to what a bot fly is so that people who don't know what they are can so if you if you guys if you're listening out there if you ever saw star trek the wrath of khan where khan like sticks that weird thing in chekhov's ear that's basically like a bot fly it's like <laughs> it's so horrible like everybody who watches that movie can well is you can't unsee that scene and like i can i can i can see it vividly in my mind right now and it's like oh it's like this oh nasty and to answer the question, so far as I know, unless you are from Puebla, Mexico South, there is no bot fly that will get you. Yeah. Yeah. I, we haven't, other than, you know, we haven't had, uh, I don't know, human cases of, of injected. Cause usually it's the fly lays eggs on the mosquitoes forehead. The mosquito bites you, the eggs fall into the hole that the mosquito made. And then, you know, I see that's all usually a lot from like central and South America, how the, that process begins. Um, then the, the bot fly develops under your skin until it's ready to come out and be a fly. So, uh, in that larval stage for a long time. So super. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a weird process, but, um, speaking of diseases, we should we should talk about jackalopes. 
that's jackalopes a, that's are a, not as that's a weird transition there, but um, jackalopes actually, are real. They're real. It has it has merit. Um, so uh, jackalopes. So human history, um, going back quite a ways, has a has a long history with jackalopes. Uh, starting even as far back in, in Europe before settlers even came to this country. Uh, the earliest known reference we've found so far is in the uh, French Encyclopedia Methodique from the 14th century, uh, referencing and actually having illustrations of antlered or fanged or winged rabbits. Uh, the, the early Q phases. Monty Python. <laughs> having having the, the, the physical manifestations of, of what we would commonly more call jackalopes today, but also some varieties. Uh, and they have names like uh, dildaps and rasselbox and wolpertangers and um, all the European varieties. But uh, um, That's amazing. What, say that again. What are they? So there's uh, dildap, uh, rasselbox, and wolpertangers. Wolpertangers are like the antlered, fanged, flying ones from Oh, I can't remember if it was Germany or Austria or something like that. Um, but uh, kind of in that that German, maybe even the Czech area, I can't remember. But yeah, they have some really strange names for them. Okay, if you're listening to this Matej Putelis from Hunt to Eat, we need a Wolpertinger t-shirt. A flying, <laughs> fanged, antlered, evil rabbit t-shirt. Make it happen. Yeah. And so... Uh, and really what that is and, and to, to where it starts, it starts in Europe. This is where everything starts uh, for the, the jackalope. But uh, European rabbits or the European hares have uh, what's a, a disease. It can develop a disease known as Shope's pampilomavirus. It's related to human pampilomavirus. It's related to human pampilomavirus. But the way it manifests itself on European rabbits is uh, they develop these warty growths on their head that can look like antlers, also on their face, which look like fangs, or sometimes both. And so when Europeans finally start coming to the United States, they actually even bring European hares with them. But but So this disease is prevalent in Europe, and so if you go out rabbit hunting all the time and you come home, you know, uncle comes home with a, you know, a, a, a rabbit that has what looks like antlers or small antlers on its head you know this this thing can kind of persist well they bring rabbits over to america shope's pampilomavirus can get here it's actually does uh spread around in cottontails particularly up in the north country like the dakotas minnesota the great lakes region you see a few of them every once in a while come from there so if every so often someone came across one of these this myth or or the mythology of of antlered rabbits could continue so that kind of goes on. Fast forward uh, to the early 1900s, mid-1900s, uh, two brothers, Ralph and Douglas Herrick from Douglas, Wyoming. Uh, a couple of young guys, uh, really avid hunters, and also starting to learn taxidermy. So I think they had a set of deer antlers on the table, and either Ralph or Douglas was out, and they shot a white-tailed jackrabbit threw it up on their, their taxidermy table, hadn't cleaned it yet. Well, it lands right next to the antlers, and they said, wow, that would be cool. We should put those on there. You know, it's just a little white-tail two-point. So they they make this taxidermied head of a, of a white-tailed jackrabbit with uh, antlers on it. And 
I think they put it in the motel in town or something. It has to be um, in a motel or a bar. Yeah, it was, bar. I think I think it was. I, well, yeah, it was somewhere. But anyway, um, while this is going on, you know, you have Waldrug over in South Dakota. So uh, was Waldrug is Waldrug that old? It's from the 1800s. No, this is in the 1900s. Okay. Um, so this is like mid mid 1900s or so, probably right after World War II, maybe even a little before that. But um, but Waldrug is out there, and and so Waldrug actually has a lot of postcards. Um, and all the postcards and, and even these illustrations of, of jackalopes had been going on uh, out of Waldrug prior to the Herrick brothers uh, even coming around. But anyway, somebody from Waldrug stops in uh, Douglas, Wyoming, sees this this jackalope, asks about it, talks to the Herrick brothers and says, hey, can you make more of these? And they said, well, yeah, we can. And so it starts the Herrick taxidermy business in Douglas, Wyoming of creating uh jackalopes for sale in Waldrug, South Dakota, because they already had postcards that had jackalopes that were traveling the world at this point. So the world is learning about American jackalopes <laughs> through these postcards, but they're all illustrations. Well, here's Arizona's tie. There's a there's a graphic uh, or not a graphic artist, but a publishing artist here in Phoenix, Arizona, who one of his customers that he sells his postcards to is Waldrug. So he goes up to Waldrug. Um, to talk about, you know, selling more cards or whatever, sees a jackalope for the first time very early when when they first started getting them. He got a fully mounted one. Uh, he, he requested, I want a whole rabbit, not just the head and the antlers, but I want the whole rabbit with antlers. So he gets a full one, brings it back to Arizona, puts it in, in Papago Park in the middle of Phoenix, takes a picture of it, and then now uses that image to sell postcards at Waldrug in South Dakota. So now this is the first ever image of a jackalope, the, the first real photographic evidence from Arizona of a jackalope standing on Papago Buttes. So now that postcard starts going all over the world, you know, and so the, the jackalope, you know, just continues and continues and continues as it goes along. To make matters worse, Arizona has a jackrabbit called the antelope jackrabbit. Right, which we've both have hunted quite a quite a lot. Yeah, and so you can see where the naming of an antelope jackrabbit versus a jackalope might confuse a whole lot of people. Well, and the thing about since, it is, like, to truly find an an antelope jackrabbit buck is very difficult. I mean, there's so many does out there. It's just the the antelope ones is. are very difficult. I think a lot it of is. them are in Sonora. <laughs> it could be. You know, or they only come out, you know, during full moons or, you know, they're hit up during the day and running, running their harems and all that. So it's a pretty amazing. Um, like when you see them like fight antlers like that, because not only do they box like regular rabbits, but they do that whole antler thing like elk, too. It's pretty impressive. <laughs> but anyway, you can see where now this connection of, of Arizona and jackalopes and everything kind of comes around to So, um but snipe do exist as well, so you know. Right, you did a whole show on snipe. Yeah, I mean, the easiest way to bag them was with a flashlight and a gunny sack in the middle of the night. I mean, that's that's uh, that's the way you do it. So salt salt on the back of the tail, that kind of thing. <laughs> right. So let's talk a bit about hunting both of them. Um, since neither of us are real experts at dogs, um, with with twenty twenty hindsight, we probably should have had a third person on here who was a dog hunter, but Oh, well, um, if if 
I think a lot of people listening to this are going to be like, you know what? I've always wanted to do more rabbit hunting. It's something that I feel I should do. Rabbits are delicious. Um, but I don't know exactly where and how to start. So I'll start with just the basic gear. Typically, you're going to hunt cottontails with a shotgun, typically. And a lighter gauge shotgun is, is probably best. And rabbits die pretty easy. So I'm thinking if you're using steel, steel fives are a pretty good choice. Lead sevens are a pretty good choice because you want enough uh, enough of a shot pattern to actually get them because they're very fast. And and but you don't need to you know use like goose loads or something like you might with a jackrabbit. So a jackrabbit, no matter what species it is, you're going to go heavier on the shotgun. You know, not necessarily like you can still shoot them with a 28 gauge if you wanted. But I'm talking, if it was me, I'm going to use threes or fours uh, or even twos in steel. Um, and if you're hunting really big jackrabbits like the whitetails in the in like Colorado or or the Dakotas or Wyoming or you're hunting jackalopes, you're going to want significantly stronger shot. Now, the problem that you and I have both had when we're hunting jackrabbits is that a lot of times jackrabbits don't let you get within shotgun range. So then talk to me about the, the, you know, if you're going to switch to a rifle. And I don't know too many people who hunt cottontails with a rifle, but you you may have. But talk to about... All right, so if I'm going to go and I live in the desert or in the Great Plains and I'm interested in hunting jackrabbits with a, a rimfire or, or maybe even a cinder fire, what do, what do I want it in that case? Um, you know, one of the things, uh, obviously a 22, you know, being the most popular, easy to find rimfire out there, uh, this is a 22 long rifle. You could step up to a Magnum uh, if you felt like, you know, things weren't. Uh, exactly right. I will tell you what I've learned is that uh, bullet technology in 22 has changed uh, significantly uh, over the time. Um, as a side note, uh, when I started, when I actually first got certified with hunter education and all that, uh, I got, I was actually shot in the face by a friend of mine with a 22. That bullet's still in there, uh, broken in seven pieces. Uh, and what we used to do when we would rabbit hunt uh, during that that age group is is all the bullets back then were lead. Uh, they didn't have jackets or washed, uh, or at least we couldn't find any. But you could find hollow points, and so we used to take our pocket knives and cut an X into the top of that hollow point uh, because we found that when when those lower velocity, standard velocity rounds would hit a rabbit, a lot of times it would not uh, sufficiently put them down, and so it would more just wound them, and they would run off and they would scream and and it was it was awful trying to to make that happen until we started learning an old timer taught us how to cut uh the top of our bullets so it would as soon as they got shot they would they would die immediately but newer bullet technology allows for these these higher velocity copper wash more bullets that expand better and and all that um I do have a friend of mine who shoots them with 17 HMR, uh, that rim fire. That works really well. Um, I actually even know another guy who shoots them with uh, uh, up to 223 um, uh, bullets uh, at distance because he can. he's out in a big area of, of open sagebrush, and he'll be able to just kind of get on a little rise, and he can spot them at, at quite a distance away, and he'll end up shooting about 150, 200 yards out. So uh, that's a big arc for a rim fire to try and, try and right. cover. 
that's a lot of Kentucky windage. So, uh, but yeah, it, it certainly works. Uh, generally, the smaller caliber uh, things you're going to want. Uh, as you know, I I have two or three guns actually specifically built for rabbits, and, and part of it's a different situation. Uh, I have one with a with a big red dot, um, which is my my uh, I call it the jack whacker because it's for rabbits that that stay in close. Uh, and then bust out at the last minute, and so I, I have to. I'm, I'm essentially, I, I, a lot of people would call this heresy by today's standards because they said you never take shots on running game. Well, I will tell you that the Jack O'Connor, who is kind of the dean of outdoor writers and and works at Outdoor Life magazine forever, uh, is probably the most prolific writer about jackrabbits because he was here in Arizona, got his degree at ASU, taught at U of A hunted a lot around Tucson and would hunt antelope jackrabbits. And he always said that the antelope jackrabbit helped him uh, give him the lifelong ability to take shots on running game and be effective at it. And so I always call Southern Arizona the the Jack O'Connor running game training facility when you're chasing antelope jackrabbits. And so I do take shots on running game, uh, particularly when I have that my red dot scope on and, and tracking rabbits and things like that. Yeah. We both I, have done that with that rifle. Yeah. And then my other one is actually a scoped rifle. I have a rimfire, um, uh, scope on there. Uh, I think it's the vortex scope, but, uh, it's a little, little bit lower magnification, all that. And that one's called the Jack hammer, because if I do have them at distance, um, where the red dot wouldn't be effective cause it's, you know, I have to, play the Kentucky windage or elevation game, uh, having the scope on there makes it a little easier. So, uh, it's just about different situational, uh, things that, that you kind of deal with. And so I, I'm really avid about rabbits. So for me, it made sense to, to make a couple guns that are to specific habitats or areas based on the hunting style. So is there a way to, uh, some tips on spotting rabbits and hares that are just standing still? Because uh, they're not easy to see. Yeah, obviously one of the big things is their ears. Um, if you can early in the morning, walk into the sun. Uh, I, a lot of people think it's a pain in the butt because you're staring into the sun, but actually what you're looking at, you're looking for, is their ears. Because their ears are bigger, whether it's antelope jacks or blacktails or anything, they they just have larger ears, and that sun glows through their ears because of how vascular it is. And it's usually like a, a peaches orange color that you can pick up fairly well at a distance. Um, so yeah, the early mornings, it's always, it's always nice to be able to walk into the sun uh, looking for that peachy, probably about, you know, the first hour or two where the sun angle is really low and, and all that. Uh, otherwise, you know, much like most other rabbits, rabbits are pretty active at dawn and dusk. So for scouting reasons, you can, you know, drive some of these country roads and all that and, and take a look to see where you're seeing most of your rabbits crossing the road or hanging out on the edge. Yeah. Dawn and dusk I find is the, that's your primo time. And for cottontails, especially it's that first half hour, you know, I mean, in most States you're allowed to hunt rabbits a half an hour before sunrise. And my advice to anybody who wants to put rabbits in the bag is to, be where you're going to hunt before legal shoot time and then start your hunting the moment legal shoot time is 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 available because you know when we would hunt jack or, or when we hunt we hunt both jackrabbits and cottontails here in northern california and you get about an hour you know it's the half hour before to a half an hour after 
and you could hunt a little bit after you know, sunrise, but after you get about an hour, hour and a half after sunrise, it pretty much dies off and it's kind of time to go home. Yeah. Well, and that's, uh, yeah, mostly because if, if you're there during those, those early morning, late afternoon hours, uh, you're more likely to see them simply because they're moving around. Uh, you know, if you're hunting during the middle of the day, a lot of times you're looking for a stationary object, which is harder for your eyes to pick up. I mean, you're a predator. You're, you're meant to see fast twitch movements and those kind of things. Um, so yeah, if a rabbit's out there hopping around, you like, oh, look, you know, it, it catches your attention off in the distance versus something that's, you know, just ears down, you know, kind of hunched up and, and in the shade of a bush for the rest of the day. So, but, uh, the other time is to my knowledge, it's not legal to hunt them at night anywhere. Is there, I mean, jackrabbits are different. So, so we should stop by saying for a second, jackrabbits, uh, are generally not viewed as legal game anywhere. There's no le- no season, no limit, no no limits on method of take for the most part. Where anything they call a hare uh, definitely has a season and a bag limit. And snowshoe hares are, are actually fairly restricted in the North Country. You know, you typically only get like four or six of them tops. But as far as I know, if you wanted to hunt jackrabbits in the middle of the night with a spotlight, you probably could. Although they might they might stop you if you you know think you're looking for deer. Yeah, I, I think it's it's dependent on um, states' rules and all that stuff. I I often refer to it and and just as a, a, a just a minor point. So I often refer to jackrabbits as hunted non-game for most states uh, because they generally tend to fall into the non-game category in terms of classifications. Where yeah, the the snowshoe hares and those are a game species in in the states where they reside. So it's not that they don't uh it's not that it's not that they're not hunted i mean you you certainly can hunt them as as we have but it they the restrictions around them are a whole lot looser uh where you're you're not managing for the conservation of the species you're managing for biodiversity of the the animal on the landscape so uh, it's a very different management style um or philosophy in terms of of where where a species falls in terms of categories so but that also holds true for cottontails in kind of the Mountain West states. There's a bunch of states where there is no season or limit on cottontails. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which drive like people from the east or the south that their heads explode when they see that. They're like, what? <laughs> because it's well, yeah, highly regulated in other places. Yeah, very active. Part of it's all about priorities in the state. I mean, Idaho just got their first squirrel season, le- legitimate legal squirrel season. Um, just a couple years ago, um, they were the last of the lower 48 to not have a squirrel season that was making everybody bonkers. It's like, how can we have 47 states uh, in the in the lower 48 that all have a season that you don't? You know, you have squirrels in Idaho, even though the red squirrels, people may not hunt them, but, you know, you definitely need a season. So, um, yeah, rabbits, rabbits can be the same way where, you know, it's a it's a cultural thing where the if you're from Tennessee or, or Kentucky and you know you've been raising beagles and chasing rabbits your whole life and then to hear the states like yeah you know go ahead and take however many you want per day you know we're good <laughs> it's yeah I mean because you have hunter effort and culture and all that kind of thing because if you imagine if you had 10,000 guys from Tennessee descend on Arizona chasing rabbits they'd put a dent in it pretty good yeah, our, our season would probably change pretty quick if that was going to be the new norm. Uh, but yeah, we're 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 not uh, we're not in danger at least at this point of uh, 
far too many rabbit hunters uh, in the state. Some field care things. So one of the things that I do, because I typically hunt rabbits and it's not terribly cold out. Um, A, because I live in Northern California or I'm hunting with you in Arizona. And B, it's, you know, I have hunted rabbits in 20 to below zero, actually, in Minnesota, which is which is a treat. Um, but when it's warmish out, I tend to, you know, I'll put them in my game bag uh, and then I will try to be reasonably close to my vehicle where I have a cooler that has block ice in it, like the big blocks of ice. And then either like a plastic bag or a burlap sack or some some separator between the the ice and and the animals. And I will try to get them sitting on top of the ice so they're cool but dry as fast as I can when it's warm out. And, you know, I mean, our season in California for cottontail starts on July 1st. So it can be super hot even at 8 in the morning. So, you know, getting them cool is really important for no matter where you are. I mean, I know we've. We will always have a cooler with ice in the back of your truck when we're down in Arizona for jackrabbits. And it's just cold, cold, cold because, you know, I mean, we've hunted and it's been 90 out. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely want to get them cooled off. I mean, and, and, you know, we tend to not get more than I think at most I feel comfortable is is about a half mile from the truck uh, on our on the big walks just because of that reason. If it's if it's hot out and, you know all of a sudden we're shooting rabbits for one. I mean, they're, you know, 10 pounds, nine, 10 pounds a piece. And, you know, if you and I each get three or four of them, I mean, we're carrying a heavy load back it's like for a that shot. reason. Yeah. Uh, but also, yeah, you, you want to, you don't want to be gone too long. So that way you can start getting them cooled off until you can uh, take care of them, uh, get them gutted and, and field dressed to, to cool that meat down. Uh, Cause it'll go bad pretty fast. So. Yeah. They have a, they have a really active gut cavity. They're almost like uh, the oily fish, where things like tuna and mackerel and bluefish, they have a really, really, really active gut cavity. And my sense is that because they're, I mean, they're kind of a micro deer, especially jackrabbits. And, you know, the inside of a jackrabbit is pretty stinky. And I think it's because they're they're actively fermenting whatever it is that they're eating. And there's more of it, I think. Well, they're they're hindgut feeders uh, like horses. Oh, Um, okay. Explain that. So you have you have kind of we as humans are what's known as a gastric system. So the things we eat uh, go into our body and it our acids break it down and, and those minerals and nutrients and those kind of things uh, enter our body, usually through uh, our intestines as it's processing through ruminant animals like deer, um, cows, elk, um, goats. They have uh, ruminants have a, a instead of a stomach, it's called a rumen. It's a four chambered um, uh, stomach that what they eat, which is usually all plant matter. Um, it's hard for us to plant past plant matter, which is why we call it fiber. And it, it you know, just passes right through us without very much change at all. Uh, when a ruminant animal eats that, what he's actually doing is he's feeding bacteria that live in that rumen. So he has kind of this boiling cauldron instead of acid. He's got. Uh, bacteria that uh, each different species of bacteria in their stomach has a particular job in breaking down the cell walls of of those plant materials uh, of that fiber and turning it into something uh, usable. So what's really feeding a ruminant animal is the bacteria. 
um, not necessarily what they eat. What they're eating is feeding bacteria, and the bacteria then in turn feed them. Well, then after it gets processed, it passes through. So rabbits um, are kind of a modification. It's 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 hindgut feeding. They're they have what's known as a as a cecum uh, near the 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 end of the intestines. So it's it's almost gastric. They're eating plant material and and all that, and it, it processes through. Um, have a little bit of gut bacteria, but but it'll they'll extract some things. Like I said, they they can switch to be omnivores, but uh, the food will stop um, near the cecum in this in this pouch. Um, and what rabbits will do is the first time it passes through their system they produce what's known as a cecal pellet. And so it's a little different color. It hasn't completely broken down everything in there. It's just gotten it to the next phase. And so rabbits are coprophagic. It's a great scientific term. You know, if, if you want to use it in, in its proper terminology, coprophagic means the poop eaters. So if, you, um, so if they smile, they always have a shit-eating grin? Yeah, yeah. You, you coprophagic, you know son of a gun you are but so they will they will they will they actually most times they don't pass the sequel pellet on their own they actually have to dig it out of their own butt Ew. Um, yeah it's it's that's why you always see them messing around like with their tail and all that stuff kind of chewing down there they're not like licking to clean themselves they're pulling the sequel pellet out and re-eating it um so that it passes through the second time and after that it produces this the what we generally get to see on the ground, which are fecal pellets. Um, so that's feces uh, instead of the the, the cecal um, pellets. So when you see rabbit poop, those are fecal pellets. They generally tend to be brown um, versus the, the the more greenish color that you see with cecal uh, pellets. So do both cottontails and jackrabbits do that? Uh, jackrabbits, uh, it's it's. I think it it is more often in jackrabbits. Uh, just dietarily. So cottontails are really interesting. The way cottontails eat is they chew rapidly. And so they actually break down a lot of those fibers into smaller and smaller pieces it goes through. Jackrabbits have a large mouth cavity and they don't chew as much or grind down the thing. So they, I think they end up having to pass more twice, uh, but it's more efficient for their body to do it that way. Hmm. Another interesting thing is, uh, is that, you know, people should know is that rabbits give birth to little pinkies, you know, little hairless, you know, not very capable babies. And but jackrabbits have precocial young. So it's like a bing. There's a little baby jackrabbit and can run around pretty quick, kind of like the way that deer and, and, and horses do. So that's just a kind of a fun fact. But there's a, an ancillary piece to that. If you are hunting jackrabbits or cottontails, is there a time of year where there are there they are more likely to be pregnant? Uh, because nobody, 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 I don't care who you are, unless you're some evil sociopath, wants to shoot a pregnant animal. So is there a time of year where there may be they're, they're more likely to be pregnant or not? Or is it just all year round? I see higher pregnancy rates, uh, at least here in Arizona, for sure, in February and March. Okay. Um, that's where I, I tend to see more of the, the high pregnancy rates, um, even into April. But there, a lot of times we'll start seeing um, probably one of the rarest things for you to see actually out there is baby jackrabbits. 
it's one of the coolest sites if you ever get a chance. I mean, I've, I've seen very few of them uh, in the wild when I've been out there because of their growth rate. Uh, they grow so that jackrabbit milk um, probably is like the badger milk of the rabbit world um, because their offspring grow so quickly. Um, they turn into they're nearly adult size in in just a matter of a few weeks. So really, um, oh, remember that yeah. time we sh- we shot that one that was like half the size of the other ones, and it's uh, I actually have a picture of its thigh next to a full grown one's thigh to to be as the as the marker and and you you said that this was a really unusual thing yeah it's 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 highly unusual to see um baby because the babies are actually very large in and of themselves they're already can see they've got hair i mean uh generally jackrabbit uh uh jackrabbits where they they have their young um in what are called forms it's like a grass bowl uh underneath a tree great right yeah kind of um they'll they they have their young there and the young stays there for probably two three weeks or so the parent hangs around uh you know the the lactating female so they can feed the rabbit but it it quickly switches over into uh regular food um and and it's it's growth during that time frame is is very 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 quick to where you know they almost become indistinguishable uh within a short while where where cottontails it takes a while like you know when you see like little bunnies you know, you see babies um, as they're growing because it takes so much longer for them to reach, you know, kind of that that normal adult size range. So, hmm. uh, one, so let's kind of slowly segue into the cooking part with some, a little bit more biology. I think um, for many people, because of the, the 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 idea that there is tularemia out there, which is a uh, a fairly serious disease, and, and I'm, you can go into the details of it in a minute. Because of the idea of tularemia, which, uh, as as far as I know, is more actually common in places like Oklahoma and Missouri and Arkansas than it is in Tulare County, California, which is where it's named for, weirdly. But my point is that unlike giblets in birds, the kidney, heart, and liver of rabbits and hares, in my experience, tends to be eaten less because people are just worried about parasites and things. Should people be worried about tularemia? And and talk a little bit about that. Well, tularemia in and of itself, um, it's a fast killer. Um, you know, it's not like a, ra- a rabbit's going to have tularemia all summer. Uh, <laughs> if a rabbit's got tularemia from infection to death is going to be under three weeks, in most cases closer to two weeks uh, that we've seen. Like it's going to get infected. It takes just a few days and it's going to start acting really, really strange uh, going after that. And then, you know, it'll, I think, I think the fastest death infection or infection to death rate, it's like uh, it's 11 days for tularemia. Uh, that would be the fastest, the longest might, you know, might extend out to up to 20 days or so. So, um, but you may not see, uh, clinical symptoms, the, the, the lesions or the spotting on the liver and that stuff, uh, early in that process. And so that's why we always recommend, uh, wearing gloves and kind of protecting yourself as you go along. Not only does it protect you, but it, it protects the meat from you. I mean, that's the moment we start introducing bacteria from the soil, from the air, from water, 
you know, into that meat source as well. And, and so it may be harder to, uh, it, it just adds one little extra layer in terms of that processing that, you know, you should observe as you go through, but tularemia really isn't the biggest, um, issue, uh, like right now. I mean, the, the big issue this year, uh, that I've had so many questions about is we had the big outbreak of, um, uh, rabbit hemorrhagic disease type two. Uh, mm, we in have that in California too. Well, it started in, in New Mexico and Arizona in the Southwest and it's slowly spreading its way across. But, uh, you know, people are like, Oh my God, you know, cause it fell right on top of COVID. And so it's, it's, you know, it seems like 2020 is conspiring to kill all of us, but, um, uh, rabbit hemorrhagic disease type two or RHDV two, uh, only affects rabbits. Um, it only impacts rabbits. And, and so what, uh, you know, essentially when you come across a dead rabbit, uh, out in the field that's a little curious because you can't see an obvious sign of death. You know, it'll just have like some blood around the nose and mouth and just, you know, just as if it just fell dead right there. Uh, but when you open it up, you'll see like, uh, you could see, uh, near the end of that progression, you'll see lesions on internal organs and things like that. Um, actually, and that's a weird thing because it's a, it's a European, uh, rabbit disease that they, that got spread over here through the domestic pet trade. It's uh, actually featured in the book Watership Down. There's a warren that gets that fever, and they they refer to it in the book. I, re- I remember it vividly. Yeah, it's well, and that was probably type one. Um, uh, so type one also started with the European rabbits and hares, um, but completely does not affect type one does not affect North American rabbits for whatever reason, and that's why we weren't sure about uh, type two. So type two was first discovered uh, in France just a few years ago in 2011. Uh, Australia, because uh, much like New Zealand, Australia, they they put a bunch of European rabbits over in Australia and they took over the countryside. Uh, Australia actually used uh, RHDV type one and type two against the rabbit populations there uh, purposefully as a biological weapon to try and wipe out the population. And and it, it did a pretty good job. It didn't completely eliminate them, but but man, did it kick the rabbit's butt. But we didn't know if they could impact North America's rabbits because type one never had an impact. So when type two just showed up this year for the first time uh, and spread very quickly, it's a faster killer than tularemia. I think the the shortest duration of infection to death is five days uh, Hmm. and could last up to, I think, 14 or 15 uh, from infection to death. But yeah, it was, it was pretty quick. And the fact that it jumped species, um, I was I was thinking that that it might get into the cocktail cocktail population, but maybe jackrabbits might be safe. But a couple of our we knew uh, New Mexico, their first uh, cases were jackrabbits. And then when it got to Arizona, southeastern Arizona, uh, because it spread like just a wildfire, uh, uh, we had both cottontails and blacktails um, that uh, were you know, had just died in this real small area and then they tested positive so we could confirm that virus here. And it's just been spreading across made to California, Nevada, uh, West Texas. Um, I think it was, I had some biologists from, from Kansas calling me saying, Hey, you know, are, are we, you know, expecting this here soon? I said, you might, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a first introduction. So it might spread across the country pretty well. So, um, but the good news with that is, is that young rabbits, uh, Rabbits that are like 50 days old or, or less um, don't seem to be as impacted. Like they won't, they may not necessarily die from it, but they'll develop an immunity uh, for the future. So 
at least one positive. That kind of gets into the cyclical nature of both rabbits and jackrabbits. I mean, there's the cycle of snowshoe hares with lynx and that kind of thing is is well known. And that that, I think it's a 10 year cycle. But you definitely I definitely have seen cycles up and down of both jackrabbits and cottontails in my area. And I'm I'm pretty sure you have, too. And is it is it something similar in the sense that is it just a, a dance between predator and prey is disease disease involved? Can you. Like with grouse, you can kind of know that, oh, 2024 is going to be a peak year in Minnesota or whatever. I'm just making that up. But yeah, is it is it measurable enough with rabbits and jackrabbits where you can say, oh, uh, you know, in three years, you're definitely going to want to come to Arizona and hunt rabbits? Well, I think in some places, in some cases, you can do that. The, the lynx and snowshoe. Uh, are pretty well tied, but we, as we all know, I mean, those really aren't all the factors that are affecting uh, both of those species, but they do seem to track very well. That that may be a, a significant part of it. Like in Arizona, the the track of rabbits, or at least rabbit harvest um, that we see, uh, follows gambles quail, which gambles quail are, are heavily influenced by winter rains in Arizona. So those winter rains cause good conditions for gambles quail, may also create the same kind of conditions for good rabbit um production as well and well, so guys. uh well at least cottontails for sure um jackrabbits we haven't been tracking uh for near as long to to see that pattern and part of it is is when there's good quail numbers obviously more hunters go out and hunt more hunt more birds and they sp- stay out longer so they also run into more cottontails as they're out there um and they end up taking more so that could be part of it but yeah always we see uh, that cottontail harvest track with gambles quail harvest um, pretty reliably. So, but jackrabbits, yeah, we haven't tracked long enough, but I've been trying to, to observe and see if I see anything. But the question is, is, you know, how big of a cycle is it? Um, that would be the question. You know, we, 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 we tend to think in always, you know, lifetime terms for us, you know, Hey, maybe is it a, a three year, a five year, seven year, 10 year, you know, 15 year, whatever, you know, I don't, it could be a 50 year, a hundred year process, you know, my lifetime wouldn't be long enough to, to understand that yet. So, well, it's very similar to the old thing about if you bust a rabbit and you kind of hide near it, the rabbit will circle back eventually. And that's kind of an old hunter's trick. And I've used that in Minnesota pretty well, where if you're stepping on a brush pile to bounce rabbits out of it, and the rabbit runs away, if you want to, you can hunker down within shooting range of that that brush pile, and eventually that cottontail is going to wander back, usually from a different direction, into that spot. Well, jackrabbits do the same thing, but except unlike a cottontail where that distance is measured in yards, uh, a jackrabbit is measured in miles. <laughs> so he will come back to that spot where you bounced him, but it might only be after dark. Yeah. Well, as we were talking about earlier, I've I've often pondered that question about coursing dogs for antelope jacks, just due to how fast they are. Um, I think we would have to use greyhounds ultimately. Um, it just as a, as a speed uh, <laughs> thing, you know, to try and stay up with that rabbit because uh, just just that speed would be incredible, and God knows how big that circle would be. Um, you know, I mean, you've seen them take off. It's like they could be in the next county in, in short order if they wanted to be. So. Yeah, like they go from Aravaca to, you know, Hermosillo and back. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to take a moment to thank Hunt to Eat for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. 
Hunt to Eat is a casual hunting and angling apparel company based on community, real food, and conservation. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out the Hank Shaw t-shirt collection. You'll also find wild game recipes, hats, and other kinds of gear, including aprons with the Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook logo on them. If you use the code HANKSHAW at checkout, you will get 10% off your order. Thanks again to Hunt to Eat, and back to the podcast. Uh, so let's talk about eating them, because, I mean, the reason why, well, I would presume anyone would hunt rabbits and jackrabbits is to eat them. Uh, it's not a, unless you actually get the buck jackalope, which is super rare. Um, you're usually, except for you, because you're a, a weird freak of nature, not going to get a bunch of mounted jackrabbits <laughs> and hares. Uh, you're, you know, the, the trophies at the table. So like we've said before in this podcast, uh, in general, jackrabbits are dark meat and, and cottontails in, in the various forms are light meat. And there can be some gradations in there. I've seen some cottontails that are reasonably dark. And I've, and like I said, snowshoe hares are, are quite light for, uh, for a hare. And then you get other things like, you know, the, the antelope jack and the, and the blacktail jacks. To my mind, what you want to do as from a cook's perspective or from your own culinary mindset is don't view white-tailed jackrabbits and black-tailed jackrabbits and antelope jackrabbits as, as rabbits, even though they look like rabbits on the outside. You treat them as micro deer. So they're, they're a dark meat that doesn't taste very different from venison. And you can treat them in any way that you would treat any other red meat dish, including, um, and, and I want, and I want you to talk to this as well. I have, especially in the very large jackrabbits, taking the back straps off, you know, like, uh, like, like you would a deer. And I've cooked those to medium, which is the, the lightest I've ever cooked any kind of lagomorph. And, you know, obviously I haven't seen any parasites or anything like that. And it's tasted good. Um, so that part, you know, is the equivalent of the saddle in a domesticated rabbit, which is, uh, you know, all domesticated rabbits used to be European rabbits. So they, you know, you've got the saddle or the backstrap on a jack or a cottontail, which you're going to want to cook as little as possible. You know, I'm not talking rare, but I'm talking like in a, you know, medium-ish for the jackrabbit and medium well for uh, a cottontail or a, uh, or a domesticated rabbit, which is fully cooked, but with a blush of pink. Whereas in, in my opinion, you should probably stew or braise or, or slow cook the whole rest of the animal. Yeah, uh, I think you're spot on right there. Part of it, you know, we when you when you look at animals and you and you talk about, um, you know, how hard the the muscle works and that kind of having an impact on uh, the tenderness or or how you're going to treat that in the kitchen. Um, uh, up to about 60% uh, of the of the usable meat on a rabbit tends to come out of the two hindquarters. I mean, that's really the the work center for a rabbit uh and what's interesting on, on those rabbits they the hindquarters are are each hindquarter is is separated into seven individual muscle groups uh pulling and pulling in that you know pushing or pulling in that that lever system they have in terms of that that running gait or the hop uh that they have and so uh if if you decide not to go with the the long slow braise you're going to have to remove that silver skin, particularly on jackrabbit. That's part of, I think, where, where some of the, the misconception about 
Jackrabbit being tough and awful and all that comes from is uh, that silver skin. If, if, if you're not cooking it to a point where it's going to melt and, and, and kind of give up, you know, you, you have to do a little bit of extra knife work, either, either scoring it so that it does free up and, and open or just completely removing it at, at, as a whole. But uh, the back straps, yeah, the back straps are, at least with the back straps, you can kind of examine them uh, on the bigger rabbits to look for parasites and things like that. And yeah, we've, we have yet, to, I think we've run into a couple rabbits where we found uh, maybe a parasite uh, cyst uh, in, you know, the middle of the meat or whatever, but, you know, we could cut that out and see that it, it didn't impact the entire uh, strip of meat because antelope jackrabbits back straps are very large. I mean, we're talking a cut of meat that's like 14, 12 to 14 inches long, about two inches wide at the, at the, the thick end, maybe three quarter of an inch at the back end and about an inch thick all the way through. So, um, it is a, it is a pretty sizable chunk of meat. Just, you know, one rabbit can, can feed you pretty well. So I think we've, I think I fed nine guys when I made that. I basically, we had one, one big old antelope jack at the, at Randy Newberg's camp in, in Arizona. And I, I know, I think I made like barbacoa tacos out of it. And I think yeah. we fed nine with that one big rabbit. One thing I really like to do with those big back straps on a on a jackrabbit, doesn't matter what the species is, is oh, and one side note, both both kinds of rabbits have like it's kind of a double layer of silver skin on their on their backs. Like there's there's like a, a miniature thin layer of meat that's got silver skin on both sides of it that comes off pretty easy, and then you'll see like a kind of a a finer sheen of silver skin that's on the underneath of that. And both of those have to come off. One of my favorite, favorite, favorite ways to cook a jackrabbit backstrap that's been removed from the saddle is as Chinese food. So what's cool about that is it's super tender, but the Chinese don't eat rare meat. So the their process fully cooks uh, whatever meat that is that they're that they're going to, to eat. And it still makes it very, very tender. So uh, there is very little better to do with a jackrabbit or even a domesticated rabbit uh, backstrap than to cut it up in small pieces for whatever stir fry that that makes you happy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and to add to that, I mean, part of that Chinese method as well, and, and this is true for all rabbits, uh, because that meat is so ultra lean, I mean, it is probably some of the leanest meat uh, you can you can find out there um it will all benefit or, or at least buffer you a little bit in your cooking or, or as you go along to make sure that you add some fat uh, or use fat in that cooking process to, to help keep it juicy and and moist uh, or you know working towards that tender or tender portion uh and the finished product so generally it's funny though like other than that stir fry thing that we just talked about oh i mean actually I was going to say that, you know, you pretty much stew or braise everything, which is which is kind of what I do, except the one beautiful thing about a wild cottontail is that chances are it's not real old, which means it is one of the very few wild game animals that you can chicken fry. Like you can legit chicken fry the way you would a, a domesticated chicken and and you can eat it and it's going to be delicious. Yeah. <clears throat> One of my favorites, um, it, it's got kind of that, that history side note to it, but it, to me, you know, like, uh, 
for for guys our age who ended up growing up watching Looney Tunes, I mean, rabbit fricassee is something you heard about a lot, particularly from the Bugs Bunny Looney Tunes show and Lord of the Haas and Pfeffer episode. Haas and Pfeffer, yeah. Um, you know, Yosemite Sam trying to cook uh, uh, Bugs Bunny, but um, one one dish that always fascinated me that I, I use cottontails for uh, is I I make a Welsh rarebit and actually add rabbit to it. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Welsh rarebit is actually like an open-faced beer cheese sandwich. Uh, and I, really the Welsh were made fun of uh, a lot because of, of this dish, uh, because the Welsh at some point in time were very poor and couldn't even afford a rabbit. I think that's part of the origin of its name, why it's called rarebit, just as a, as a derivation of rabbit. Uh, it was it was the Welsh version of rabbit, which everyone could afford apparently in England at that time. But uh, they used to make this open-faced beer cheese sandwich, and uh, so adding cottontail into that, or or if you had European hair, I would even use that. But uh, um, yeah, and and the rabbit, it really doesn't matter. I usually pre-prepare rabbit uh, for that dish, so it's either you know roasted or or chicken fried, like you said, and have some of the that extra rabbit just laying around to be able to make it. Um, it's a delicious dish. Yeah, I mean, I think the coolest thing about this episode is that when we get into to, to the eating part, you talk about the eating part um, with cottontails, with, with white meat rabbits. Virtually every culture in the world eats eats them where they live. So there there are rabbits in Africa, there are rabbits all over Europe, there's rabbits in Asia, um, you know, there's there's rabbits in Mexico. So you you if you're looking for inspiration for a rabbit recipe, you can probably find one in the cuisine that you're happen to be excited with at the moment. Now, the the ca- the, the caveat to that is uh, our hares. So the dark meat rabbits, they're not as commonly eaten. I mostly get my inspiration for hare recipes from Europe, and I've not really found a ton of jackrabbit or hare recipes outside the European tradition with the exception of indigenous recipes from Mexico and, and they're eating the antelope jackrabbits and most of those most of those cookbooks are in Spanish so if you can't read in in, uh, uh, in Spanish you're gonna you're you're probably just gonna have to look at my website for whenever I print them. <laughs> Kind of a, a an inspiration for uh, hares and jackrabbits as well. I mean, if if you're looking for something different, is to look at recipes from Cyprus. Huh. Um, the island of Cyprus, the largest game animal on Cyprus is hares, uh, and it's, so it's very commonly eating uh, there. And they have a ton of recipes that are exclusive to just European hares that translate really well to North American jackrabbits and hares. So that's so Cypriot cuisine is kind of like a mashup of Turkey and Greece, right? Yeah. I mean, I think both countries fought over it. <laughs> yeah. If I remember right. For sure. That's a really but, interesting uh, one. Yeah, when I when I first started hunting uh, antelope jackrabbits down here after after I discovered Jack O'Connor and and you know kind of was figuring things out uh, through a, an old, um, set of outdoor life magazines that were, were at the ASU Hayden library stacks that I, I found through my Dewey decimal system dyslexia. Um, uh, 
I ran into a, a guy, there was uh, another guy in the agency who had just kind of started hunting them as well. And we were talking about it and, and a friend of his out in Tucson, um, his wife was actually from Cyprus and she sent him out, uh, to go hunt. Uh, she wanted a bunch of uh, rabbits because she wanted to cook some traditional dishes from when she was growing up. And so she's like, I need a bunch of rabbits. So he's like, all right, I'll figure this out. And, um, so it was really kind of neat. He turned me on to that uh, when he told me about that. I was like, oh, okay, I'll check into it. And yeah, sure enough, there's a there's a gob of hair recipes um, out of Cyprus uh, using that because he's like, that's the largest game animal they have. So hmm, who knew? So is there any other thing that we should talk about? Oh, yeah. You know, actually, one one other thing I want to talk about, in, you know, with the food aspect is what is the difference between hair and venison? And um, they're both red. They both could be you know, interchanged in a recipe, but there is a, ta- a flavor difference. The flavor difference that I can perceive is that jackrabbit or hare meat tends to be much finer grained and it tends to be softer. So it's, it's not quite as soft as something like a muskrat or, or a beaver, which uh, if you haven't eaten those know that they're unusually soft meat. So, and I'm not talking um, tender, which they, they will get tender, but there's a softness to it that's different from, say, a larger mammal like a deer or, or a cow or something like that. Um, it is noticeable, but it is not enough. It's not off-putting in any way. There's no – I've never had a jackrabbit of any species that was like, oh, this is weird in terms of its smell or its flavor. It's a very neutral meat, surprisingly. Yeah, it, it that that texture almost feels velvety uh, yeah. on your tongue um, versus something that's a little coarser, uh, like deer meat. You know, like when you're eating just kind of a thin butterfly cut steak or something for the first time, uh, you'll you'll notice that that it does have a little little more give to it, and, and yeah, v- being very neutral, uh, it cottontails for sure absorb flavors. Um, I, I think probably you know one of the best ones that that just you know whatever you're going to cook it in is, is part of that flavor that it's going to take on. Cause it just doesn't have a, uh, it's, it's not even like the gallinaceous birds definitely have kind of a pronounced, uh, side to them where cottontail doesn't have yeah. that, you know, it's, it's not as strong, uh, in any way. Uh, cause you can all, I mean, like when you're tasting quail or you're tasting pheasant, you, you, you can kind of, it's the familiarity to like chicken uh, that, that you experience. I mean, I, everyone's had that really great bowl of chicken noodle soup made from really good chicken broth um, that, you know, it's just that kind of familiarity feeling and, and flavor uh, that cottontail just doesn't seem to, to have uh, to, to any great extent. Uh, and certainly the, the two rabbits are, are nothing um like each other in terms of flavor and, and things like that. But yeah, I, I hard to put into words. Uh, I think the best way to describe means, cottontail, the best way to describe cottontail to me is it acts like chicken. It doesn't taste yeah. like chicken, but it looks and acts like it. And I, I totally agree with you that it's, it's a, it's a, an almost blank slate. I do one recipe. It's Italian and it's, it's inspired by a great Bay area chef named Paul Bertoli. And it is a very delicate braise of a rabbit. It's called a white rabbit is, is the name of the dish. And it's because it's you're using kind of white flavors. You're not doing Maillard. You're not, 
you know, there's not a, you're not you're letting the rabbit speak for itself. But it's a subtle dish, and it's a dish that not everybody gets because you have to. It, it's a quiet flavor, and it's it, it, you almost have to eat it quietly to really pick it up. It doesn't hit you over the head like like anything from the Southwest. Like Southwest right. flavors are big and bold, and you know, green chili cottontails can taste like green chili, well, whatever. And <laughs> and so it it is very difficult to to coax out the uniqueness of of any white meat rabbit, whether it's a store bought or a or a wild one. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, we've been going for a while, Jonathan. I think uh, this is a pretty good way to to wrap it up. How can people get in touch with you uh, if they are interested in learning more about rabbits or or especially about rabbit hunting in Arizona, where which is where you work? Uh, well, obviously you can uh, visit the uh, Arizona Game and Fish Department's webpage. Um, it might take a little digging around in there, but uh, we actually just released our small game forecast for this year. So it covers uh, all the small game, uh, how things are doing population-wise and uh, what to expect as far as it goes. Uh, there's a number of other resources. Uh, you can always find me on Instagram or Facebook. Um, on Instagram, my, my handle is Cyrus Hunter, the the um, Latin form of, of squirrel, Cyrus, S-C-I-U-R-U-S. There you um, go. I was going to ask you to spell it. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, or just Jonathan O'Dell on Facebook. Um, you can kind of look me up there. But there's a number of great uh, Facebook groups as well. I know particularly here locally in Arizona, there's a, an Arizona rabbit hunting forum uh, or, or uh, rabbit hunting group on Facebook. Uh They've been inviting a lot of folks, and they're they're pretty active. You see pictures pretty regularly, and and finding out people asking, you know, where to go, where what to look for. I'm new to the state, how to get this working out. So uh, I I stay pretty active on most of those and uh, help people out where I can. Well, all right, man, it's been good talking with you, and thank you for coming on the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. And I will see you in the winter. You bet. That is our show for the week. I am your host, Hank Schaub. Big shout out to Hunt to Eat and Filson for sponsoring Hunt Gather Talk. Thanks a heap for listening to the show. This is, as I said at the outset, the penultimate episode of season two. So this is the last species-specific episode of season two. And next time, which will be on December 18th, expect a wrap-up kind of an episode where I kind of put it all together i wrap up everything that we've learned over the last oh god year it's been a year season two has lasted because because of the whole miss rona and delays and lockdowns and all kinds of craziness of this pretty horrible 2020 that we're all experiencing but throughout it all i really appreciate your help i appreciate your support i appreciate you listening to the show so again, I am your host, Hank Shaw. You can follow me on Instagram at HuntGatherCook. You can follow me on Facebook on the Hunt Gather Cook forum. And as always, you can find me on my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. It is honest-hood.net, or you can get to it from huntgathercook.com. But it's Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. I will talk to you soon. And until then, shoot straight, eat well, and stay safe out there.